Psalm 98, been doing a few different psalms that are uh, speaking about and pointing forward to uh, the coming of Christ. Uh, this morning, Psalm 98 is the very psalm that Joy to the World uh, was based off of, and so I thought we had to focus on that here on Christmas Eve. From Psalm 98, one of the psalms, one of the only psalms in the book of Psalms that the, the title or the description of it is just simply a psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we are turning our attention towards your word, we, we recognize, Father, that um, it is only by uh, your Spirit uh, that we can have life in us, spiritual life. And so, Lord, we pray for your Spirit to come, that your Spirit would work as we consider your words and hear your words this morning. And Lord, help us. Help us to know you as you are revealed to us through your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, uh, Isaac Watts was born exactly 300 years before I was, in 1674, and he died in 1748. Uh, he came to know the Lord early in life and was raised by an evangelical father. Uh, young, young, young Isaac was a poet, and he was deeply moved by the gospel of God's grace. So he was discouraged by the lack of joy and passion that he sensed in his church's worship services. Here's what uh, Isaac wrote about the congregational worship in the churches that he was a part of um, back in, in England in that time um, of history. He said, To see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, he was saying even the most kind and gracious persons who may have come into their worship services and watched their church sing would question whether or not they really believe the gospel or love the Lord at all. So he would complain about this to his father, and his father did what many fathers do for their children, uh, who come to them not happy about something or not happy about the way things are going. 
His father told him, well then, do something about it. Write better hymns for the church to sing. And so that's just what Isaac did. Isaac Watts would write over 750 hymns, or more accurately, he'd write poems that could be put to music based on the, uh, the, the many wonderful gospel truths that are in the Bible. He became a pastor, and in 1719, when Watts was 45 years old, he published the Psalms of David, which was a collection of his poems where each verse was based upon a psalm. Uh, he didn't just transliterate the psalms in his poems. He interpreted the psalms as finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which I believe is how the Lord intended the psalms to be understood. Among those poems published in 1719 was one based on the second half of Psalm 98, beginning at verse 4. And the first line of the poem that Isaac Watts wrote is, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. So Isaac Watts was not trying to introduce a new Christmas carol when he wrote those words. He was just looking at Psalm 98 and trying to poetically construct a poem that would point the reader to the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed that the king that's being referred to in Psalm 98 is Jesus. And when it was first published, it was just one of the many poems on the Psalms that were part of that collection. But then 117 years later, in 1836, a composer who was also a music director for three different churches in Boston, a man named Lowell Mason, came across these verses in Watts's The Psalms of David and decided they'd make a good hymn. So he decided to put them to music. And he composed the melody that is very similar to some of the choruses in, in Handel's Messiah, making it recognizable and easy for congregations to sing, which is what Mason was most well known for. That's why his name is um, on many of the uh, hymns of the church that we still sing today. And then sometime after that, churches began singing it, and because of some of the lines that refer to a few themes of the Christmas story, like, like joy, the Lord's coming, and the line, prepare him room, which of course reminds us of uh, no room for him in the inn. Churches began singing this hymn then at Christmas time, and it became one of our most beloved Christmas carols, even though the words are quite clearly not referring to the first coming of Christ, but his second coming. And that's something I really wanted all of us to be thinking about this Christmas. That one of the main realities that the birth of Christ points to is that he will come again in order to make his blessings flow far as the curse of sin in this world is found. So our main theme for Psalm 98 is this, that the Lord is king and the earth will rejoice when he comes to make all things right. Now Psalm 98 is very similar to Psalm 96, if you would compare the two. It has also uh, many other similarities to other psalms. Uh, it is a psalm of praise and it, and it calls the reader to sing praises 
to the Lord three different times in the psalm. It gives three main reasons for why we ought to rejoice and sing to the Lord, and those reasons make up the structure for the psalm. In verses 1 through 3, we are to rejoice for the Lord's salvation. Then in verses 4 through 6, we are to rejoice for the Lord is king. And in verses 7 through 9, we are to rejoice for the king is coming. So first of all, we'll take a look at verses 1 through 3, rejoice for the Lord's salvation. Now as you uh, uh, read the first three verses of this psalm, you can't help but notice that one of the main themes, one of the main reasons for singing to the Lord is because of the Lord's salvation. It's mentioned three different times in these verses, once in, once, uh, in each of the three verses. And the psalm, however, does not go into detail about what the Lord has saved his people from or how the Lord has saved his people. That, that's not the focus of it. The focus is rather on the Lord himself. It is his salvation. It is a salvation that he has accomplished by himself, by his own power and strength. That is, by his right hand and his holy arm, it says in verse 1. The Lord has done it on his own, without any assistance from his people, from any other being other uh, or, or source of strength, He is a a Savior, and He has saved His people, and He has done it in such a way that it has become known throughout the world. It's become known because He made it known. By saving His people, the Lord revealed His righteousness so that all nations could see it. That's what we're told in these three verses. And as we consider the history of the people of God, we know of a few possibilities that the psalmist could have been referring to here as a very public display of the Lord saving his people that became pretty well known. The main one, of course, would be the Lord's quite embarrassing defeat over Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. That story is told in the first half of the book of Exodus, with the highlight being when the Lord created this path of dry ground through the Red Sea so that his people were able to cross over the sea without any trouble, And then once they were all across the sea, the Lord then caused the wall of water that he had been holding back supernaturally to then crash down once again upon Pharaoh and his chariots as they were pursuing his people to kill them and capture them and drag them back to Egypt. Those of you who are familiar with that story, I wonder, do you remember what Moses and the people did on the other side of the Red Sea? after the Lord had wiped out Pharaoh's army. That's in Exodus chapter 15, and verse 1 of Exodus 15 says, Then, that is, right after the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians all by himself, which was very clear to all the people of Israel who were there who witnessed it, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And then the whole chapter of chapter 15 is this song that they sang and praised God with. So they sang this new song immediately after the Lord saved them. And the, and the song was all about how the Lord miraculously saved them by his powerful strength. Just like the psalmist is calling the Lord's people here to do 
in this psalm. When he says, sing to the Lord a new song. He's not saying that you need to make up a new song to sing, one that's never been sung before. He is saying, sing praises to the Lord, particularly for a new or another way that the Lord has saved or delivered you. Like what the Israelites did at the Red Sea. Now, let's not forget that this past year has been uh, a very hard year for some within our church body. And yet amid uh, the sadness, the Lord's grace was evident in the lives of his people. One of those moments that that stands out for me was back in June when uh, Don Keister, um, our brother, was in the hospital and he had just had the surgical procedure done to clear open some bile ducts that were blocked because of of cancer. And it made him feel terrible for for months, not having uh, eaten very much. He had no appetite to eat. He had nothing tasted good uh, to him. He was very discouraged. But then he had this surgical procedure done, and he noticed an immediate difference after the procedure. He felt much better. He could taste food again. And probably the most encouraging thing of all for him at that time, he was surrounded by his family who came to be with him in the hospital, spent a weekend with him there. When I came to see him after the surgery, uh, Don was singing a new song to the Lord. He was profusely exclaiming how thankful he was. He was praising God for his mercy and grace. He was telling every nurse and hospital staff member who came into his room, how great God is, and affirming to them that prayer works. It was one of the most encouraging hospital visits I have had in a while. Not only was Don praising God for the salvation that Christ had worked for him through his death and resurrection, Don was recognizing how the Lord had saved him through that surgery. And that faith in God then sustained Don all the way to the end of his life uh, at the, at the uh, last fall, this past fall. So friends, Christmas reminds us of God's great work of salvation. By sending his son into the world, the Lord was working out the salvation of his people by his right hand and his holy arm. And through the Christmas celebrations and the Christmas worship services all throughout the world, the Lord is making his salvation known to all people. Now, yes, our our secular society may, may, may try to suppress the truth of Christmas by their unrighteousness and ungodliness, but the bells are ringing. God's people are rejoicing. We continue to sing to the Lord these songs of praise For his salvation and more and more people are being converted each year. And one day, after our Lord returns as he has promised, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All because Christ has come. Verses 4 through 6 then. We are to rejoice for the Lord is king. Rejoice for the Lord is king. Uh, verse 4, as I said, was the inspiration for the first verse of Watts' famous poem, 
on Psalm 98. Uh, I'll read that again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joy song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the, song, and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Now in Watts' version, of course, the first line goes, Joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. That is the reason we are given for why we ought to rejoice in the heart of this psalm. The Lord is king. We have a king, and he is the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who has always been, is now, and forever will be. Our maker and our sustainer. He is Yahweh, he is the Lord, and he is the king. And he is coming. He is coming and he will defeat all of his enemies and his kingdom shall have no end. He will never be overthrown. He will never be defeated. In early May of this year, for the first time in over 70 years, the United Kingdom crowned a new king. I don't know if you watched the coronation of King Charles back on on May 6th. I didn't watch it back then, uh, but I saw a recording of it uh, this past week as I was thinking about this passage, and it was quite the ceremony. After receiving the two different uh, scepters, um, the presentation of the regalia, as they say, uh, was complete, and then they finally placed this, this crown upon the head of King Charles, um, the attendant you know, making sure that, that it fit right, making sure it wouldn't, wouldn't fall off of him. In an embarrassing fashion, he set it on there and, and worked on it for quite a while and then stepped back in front of King Charles and shouted out, God save the queen! And then everyone who was in attendance at the cathedral responded by also shouting, God save the king! And then immediately after they said that, trumpets began to blare. A lot of trumpets. And the trumpets blasted to announce the coronation of the king, and they went on for a good three to four minutes. And throughout the history of God's people, whenever Scripture records the coronation of a king, trumpets blast, trumpets blare. Trumpets are always a part of the ceremony announcing the king's coronation. We've been studying the book of Kings in Sunday school and we saw in 1 Kings chapter 1 that trumpets blared, uh, announcing the coronation of King Solomon over the United Kingdom of Israel just before the death of his father, King David. And then many years later in Israel, when a prophet came to anoint Jehu as king over Israel, they blew the trumpets and announced his unexpected coronation as king of Israel in 2 Kings 9. And then just a few weeks ago, we were in 2 Kings 11, and there the priest Jehoiada and his wife had preserved the life of Jehoash, the youngest son of Azariah, when Athaliah, who was the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel, when she tried to wipe out the line of David, killing all the sons of Azariah so that she could be queen, Jehoiada the priest waited until Joash was seven years old, and then he held the coronation to make him king, 
And Queen Athaliah had no idea what was going on until, until she heard the trumpets. She heard the trumpets announcing that there was a new king over Judah, and then she knew. And she knew she was in trouble. The books of Kings and Chronicles are a pretty sad history of the failures of the kings who ruled over God's people. As, as the king went, so did the people. When the king was faithless, the people suffered because of their unbelief. When the king went after idols and led the people to do the same, the people would suffer famine, uh, judgment from the Lord. The book of Kings is a clear example of the great need God's people had for a true king, a faithful king, a strong king, a king who was himself righteous, a king who would rule over his people with justice. And the history of this world is littered with the sins and wickedness of kings and rulers, rulers of the nations in our world today even leave a lot to be desired. This leaves us longing for the true king, the righteous king, a king who will bring justice. And Jesus is and will be the greatest king, the best king, the perfect king, whereas the kings of the earth have demanded their people to praise and honor them as greater and more honorable than they actually are. King Jesus will always be so much greater, so much more righteous, so much more honorable than our praises could ever describe. King Jesus will never steal from us or others in order to gain wealth for himself, for everything already belongs to him anyway. And instead, he has, he has and he will continue to give gifts to men, as Ephesians 4.8 tells us, gifts that, that none of us deserve. Our King Jesus will never seem to be out of touch with any portion of the population of his kingdom, whether they be young or old, but we know, we know he was already made like his brothers in every respect when Jesus was formed in Mary's womb and born into the world as a baby. So because of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, King Jesus is fully able, as it says, to sympathize with our weaknesses. For he, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we do not have a king who is unable to do much of anything to solve the problems that we have. Problems of crime, problems of inequality, homelessness addiction, disease, death. When King Jesus comes, he will raise the dead to life. He will put a final end to all suffering, all death, and all sin. And he will judge all the wicked. And he'll transform and glorify all those who belong to him. Oh, we long for the day when our king will come to reign on the earth. And the New Testament tells us not only that the day is coming, but it tells us that we will not miss it. We will not miss it. It will not be a secret, mysterious coming. But as it says in 1 
Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. With trumpets and the sound of the horn make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So are you ready for the king to come? Are you longing for him to come? Or when you hear those trumpets, will it cause you to tremble and give you great fear that now you have to face him in judgment? The king's coming. Let the earth rejoice. Lastly, verse 7 through 9, rejoice for the Lord is coming. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So here in these last few verses of the psalm, the psalmist extends his invitation to praise the Lord to the sea and every creature within the sea, all the people and all the creatures of the world and the rivers and the hills. So in other words, all of creation, everything, not just those made in God's image, but everything are called to rejoice at the coming of the Lord to the earth. And this reminds us of similar calls for the creation to praise the Lord and the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verse 12, for example, we read, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So why would both the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah make mention of things that we consider to be inanimate objects, you know, trees, hills, rivers, seas, mountains, to come to life in a way like us in order to praise the Lord by singing and clapping and rejoicing. I mean, why will the creation be so happy for the Lord to come? Well, it's because they will be like a man who is dying of cancer but has now been completely healed of it and has miraculously come to have the strength and vigor that he had when he was 20 years old. The creation will be like the woman who has been paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair and then is miraculously healed and now has the strength and ability to get out of her chair and run and leap and dance on legs that are strong and as agile as a college gymnast. That is what it will be like for the earth and all of creation for when the Lord comes. He will put an end to the curse of sin that creation has been suffering under since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, after the first man and woman had sinned against God by taking and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord came to them and pronounced the sad curses that their sin and rebellion had brought upon the earth. The same curse that we've been suffering under throughout our experience on this earth. So there God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground, or it could also be translated as earth. Cursed is the earth because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So our sin brought suffering upon creation. It brought hardship. It ultimately, it brought death. We were called to work the ground and keep it, that is, to protect it. But because all of humanity are born in in, in this world as sinners, then creation has suffered under the flawed and often violent reign of humanity upon it. We have brought suffering upon creation through our wars, through our destruction, and through our mismanagement of it. And so that is why we see the Apostle Paul declare in Romans 8, 19-22, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The third verse of Joy to the World has always been the most powerful verse for me. Unfortunately, it's also often the one that gets skipped over in worship services. But verse 3 reveals why the seas, the rivers, the hills, and all creation will roar and clap their hands, rejoicing at the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because as we sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Because... He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. He will put an end to the curse of sin on the world. He will fully cleanse the world of sin and sinners and will transform this world. He will remake it, and all of creation will be clean and pure and will finally be able to thrive in a world free of sin and free of the disobedience and wickedness of man. Verse 9 tells us how the coming of the king will also include a judgment of all the world. Look back at verse 9 again. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Again, for those of you uh, in my, my Sunday school class on kings, we have also seen that quite often at the coronation of a new king, there would often be a judgment. At the coronation of King Solomon, when his brother Adonijah heard the trumpets blare and all the people shouted, long live King Solomon, well, he began to tremble because he had tried to usurp his father's authority and set himself up as king with the help of Joab and Abiathar the priest, and they had made themselves enemies of Solomon, enemies of the true king. And they would soon be under his judgment. Then in 2 Kings 11, at the coronation of Joash as king of Judah, as I mentioned, the queen mother Athaliah, who had just recently murdered all of his brothers, uh, knew that she was about to be judged and put to death when she heard the sound of the trumpets declaring that Joash was king. And a similar thing will happen at the coming of Christ. He will come to judge the world with righteousness, it says. So imagine Christians in China 
who have had their pastors imprisoned, who have, had, who have been pushed around by the Communist Party, who have had to continuously change the location of where they are meeting for their worship gatherings, who have been betrayed by communist agents who have infiltrated their churches, act like, act like they were believers in order to turn them in, well, they will finally be vindicated. And the Lord will judge those who have done evil to them. Or think of the lower caste believers in India who have had their church leaders beaten and some killed, who have had their children kidnapped and sold into slavery and trafficked out of their country. Well, the king will come to vindicate them and judge all those who have done them harm. Or think of many, many Africans who were kidnapped and locked in cages and shipped over the Atlantic Ocean to serve as slaves in the American South 200 years ago. Many of them became believers and suffered greatly under their masters. They will be raised from their graves to life. And they'll see their king, their savior, the Lord Jesus, vindicate them and punish those who enslaved and beat and harassed them. Maybe you have been hurt. Maybe you have experienced injustice. Maybe you have suffered from the sins and wickedness of others. If you have placed your trust in Christ, then when he comes, he will vindicate you and restore all that you have lost. He will set things right. He will do as Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang about in Luke chapter 2. She's saying, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. This psalm and Watts' song is a fulfillment of what Christ came to do through his life, his death, and his resurrection. As one writer put it, Christmas is not only a time to look back at the grace accomplished in the past, Christmas is also a time to look forward to the grace that was accomplished for our future. When we sing the words of joy to the world, we are proclaiming the ultimate joy to be revealed. So as you celebrate Christmas this year, I want you to have on your minds and your hearts the future that Christ came to bring us. A future where, where God will dwell with us on the new earth, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice this morning. We are humbled by your word and by the hope of your coming. 
to make your blessings flow in our hearts, sanctifying us completely, transforming us, making us completely righteous, and your blessings flowing over this whole earth as far as the curse has extended. Everything. You will make new. You will set all things right. We thank you, O Lord, for the coming of Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection, and the promise, Lord, that we have that he will come again. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.